0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 14th, 2015, and this is episode 1574 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got an interesting one for you today. i got a gentleman on the line named uh, Frank Thrall that I'll be bringing on in a bit to discuss permaculture and keyline design. And um, even if this isn't your thing, like the keyline design thing, and it is kind of a, a higher level academic discussion on some levels uh, about design, there's some really interesting information here that is very actionable for those of you that want to get done more with regenerative uh, design, with permaculture, with doing things in a, in a very proactive way and instilling them in our youth. There's a, a way to use an existing invisible structure to convince the public establishment to allow you to, in a structured manner, encourage our young people to practice regenerative permaculture in their own backyards. And you're going to learn how to do that. It's kind of a, a bootleg around the end, so to speak. And I really, really dug it. And I think we probably could have done an entire episode on just that one thing that you'll hear dropped in the middle and then revisited at the end. So keep your ears open for that. I have a lot of other stuff for you today, though. Today's going to have a few other things going on in it. Uh, I've got the the usual updates, but then I'm going to talk to you about Operation Jade Helm. Some new stupidity has come to me that I want to make you aware of. Usually this is the kind of thing I would put on a Monday show. But the stupidity has reached such a high level of nonsense moronicism with Jade Helm, that I, I need to bring this to your attention so that you can be shielded against the massive, heaping, steaming cups of Supa de Mierda de Toro, or bullshit soup, now being fed to you by alternative media. Mainstream media constantly feeds you Mierda de Toro, um, and alternative media does it, but this Jade Helm thing, and every other uh, guy that's an, a wannabe Alex Jones, and if you want to be somebody, don't want to be Alex Jones, good God, but every wannabe Alex Jones out there is looking for anything to hype this thing, and to make it something that it's not. So I'm going to talk to you about that today too, then we'll transition into that discussion about permaculture and keyline design, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy today's show. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week, for an hour to two hours a day. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing, and that means as as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you, and I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same it's the same it's the same you get the same silver eagle from JM bullion as you do from APMEX or Monex it's exactly the same it's the same purity it's the same weight it's the same design it's the same cut it is the same it's like buying a Wilson basketball whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors it's the same that's the point so why pay more so why not deal with a company that's a small company that has great customer service that offers free shipping on all orders, and that's better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor uh, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than J.M. Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from J.M. Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines. Be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, Raw herbs and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program, where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulders acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys... If it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at WesternBotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, WesternBotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium Membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1574. I have When the King of Poland... When is the King of Poland a lot like the King of France? I also have Europe's First Public Garden. And I have The Fifth War of Religion, or as is commonly known, Thursday. And that's about how common wars are becoming at this time. But I'm going to read Europe's First Public Garden because I think it... I have a take on it that I think a lot of people would never take up on it, and I think it's something that we can use even to this day, and it has nothing to do with feeding ourselves, by the way. Well, it sort of does, but not directly from a garden. Anyway, uh, and by the way, in Europe, they use the word garden a lot more loosely than we do. When we say garden here, uh, we mean something that produces some sort of food. In Europe, your backyard, if nicely landscaped, is referred to as a garden. Um, I know that some people say a flower garden might still be a garden. I'm telling you, if you have a nice, pretty, green lawn with a few shrubs around the edge and a little bit of landscaping in England, they say this is the garden, just so you're aware as we read this. Anyway, ever since the large river near Savelle was dammed up, the area below the dam has remained swampy. and natural aquifer has fed water into the area, keeping it too wet for substantial development. So Count Don Francisco... Francisco, that's fun to say. Who knows where that's from? Anyway, Count Don Francisco has drained the swamp, but but built some fountains and planted several rows of white poplar trees, also known as silver poplar, to create a promenade for a pleasant walk. The Alameda de Hercules was the first public garden in Europe, if you don't count Istanbul as Europe. The Alameda is best recognized in the modern day by the pillars of Hercules that grace the north and south entrance to the promenade. Uh, The southern columns are the original columns from the Roman temple that existed in the Santa Cruz quarter. The columns are meant for the northern entrance were damaged beyond repair, so they are reproductions. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these awesome history segments together for us at tspwiki.com. The Renaissance reintroduced private gardening, but a garden for public use is new to Europe. While popular trees are native to Spain and Portugal, they can be found near rivers, so they were the perfect choice for wet conditions found at the Alameda. They also tolerate salt and acidic soil, so they're the kind of trees you need for tough soil conditions. I gave the impression the Alameda simply got better and better, but over the centuries it has undergone deterioration and renewal for several cycles, Ten years ago, the Alameda was the perfect place to find a night's companionship at reasonable prices or to find drugs. Now it is a site for trendy restaurants. Nothing stays the same, or as I have been told many times, this too shall pass. Here's my take on this. When a state, whether it's a countship or a dukedom or a kingdom or a monarchy or a republic or whatever, can afford to take a piece of land that's too wet, meaning you could grow something there to eat. You could do something with it for productive purpose. You could lease it to somebody. You could make it common grazing land. You could plant a bunch of apple trees and say they belong to the king. Whatever. Okay. When a state can afford, when a city, when a county can afford to set aside a public piece of ground solely for recreational purposes, it means that that society, at least a segment of it, is existing in a state of abundance. It is impossible to to see a place where we take a piece of land and go, you know what we'll do? We'll plant a bunch of trees there and kids can play underneath it, and anybody can use it if people are, in general, within society, the majority, say, trying to figure out where their daily bread's coming from. That's why it's part of the Renaissance. It's part of, and it's also part of becoming an importation society. Not that we can't be an abundant society without a massive amount of importation, but at the time, the technology, the knowledge, that's what was required, to be able to get all these resources at lower costs from other places coming in, which frees your people up to do what they want to do and have the art and the Renaissance and the plays and everything else and to put aside land like this is a park. There's also another lesson here. There's many of us out there that are advocates of, why don't we do more of these green spaces and public parks and what have you, and why don't we plant edible food and stuff like that. And you're going to hear us talk about this today in the interview a little bit. The whole concept that they can become bastions for crime is part of the problem. And one of the things I learned from Dave Jackie, and Dave and I would probably butt heads on you know half the things we talk about and completely agree on the other half, but there's, you, know, you can learn from people that you butt heads with. And one of the things I learned with him in doing the the Montana project, even though the city drove me crazy, is the importance of social design. And if you're going to set aside something like that, there needs to be stakeholders that have a stake in the success of the project that are active and involved, not just a bunch of guys running around with weed eaters once a week for the city. That's how these things get maintained and don't turn into places for drug deals and prostitution. And your kid goes there to play and finds you know dirty needles laying under a bush and picks it up and gets stabbed. And then you're going through all kinds of testing and fear and worry for a year. That's what's necessary. You also have to have a a component that says that there are groups of people that want it, that have a vested interest in maintaining it. And maintaining it isn't always a mechanical maintenance. But the truth is, when good people spend time in a place, bad people tend not to. There's a pattern of recognition there. What do I always tell you? I have a weed in my land and I want to get rid of it. Plant something you want where the weed is. Occupy the space. That's how you control an area. Is You don't necessarily have to have police enforcement and vigilantism or whatever. But if you have a preponderance of good, solid people doing the right things and having good, solid community in a location the vagrants, the vagabonds, and the criminal element tends to go elsewhere. They don't want to be where they're outnumbered. My take by Jack Spearco. Next up today, I promised you some more Jade Helm stupidity. And I'm going to bring it to you right now. This is one of the dumbest things you will ever hear in your life. And it will sound quite frightening if you allow it to. I'm going to play for you. A video that's posted to redflagnews.com. That should already be a red flag that you probably shouldn't listen to. Let me read the article to you before I play the video. Update. Jade Helm. WTF are Turkish missile launchers doing stashed in the Texas woods? Update. United States Marine, Peter Santilli. Now, note that's his credential. He's a Marine. Not a Marine Colonel, not a Marine Artillery Specialist, a Marine. For all we know, this guy's a cook, or a clerk. United States Marine, Peter Santilli, who worked in aviation deployment, yes, he could be a cook working in aviation deployment, has identified and confirmed that those military vehicles that were stashed in the Texas woods are Texas M-270 Multiple Launch Rocket Systems. Well, it seems that when it comes to the upcoming military PSYOP, known as Jade Helm, things keep getting weirder and weirder. In this latest update concerning Jade Helm, a Texas man was driving on Highway 57 just route of Route 59 when he came across an amazing and absolutely disturbing discovery. That is, of course, if you are one of those crazy conspiracy theorists that believes that the federal government doesn't have our best interests in mind. Even if you are still one of those that reside in the camp of trusting your government, after seeing what this man has brought to her attention, you might change your tune. And now, if you really want some comic relief, Jack is going to play this for you. And if you, if you really want to laugh, if you really want a good laugh, I encourage you to come by the website, look up episode 1574, click on the link and go to this nonsensical website and watch the video. Because if you watch the video, it is far more comical than what you are about to hear even after I deconstruct the super de Mierda de Toro that you are being served. This is a giant steaming cup of bullshit soup brought to you by the Survival Podcast. Here you go, guys.
2: Hey guys, Dabu7, want to share with you here some footage coming out of Texas, off on the side of the road here behind a barbed wire fence. You know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but uh, I'm driving through the backwoods way through Texarkana, Texas,
1: and I came across this. Out of here in the middle of nowhere. Now what do you suppose all these are doing parked inside this barbed wire fence? here in the woods
2: things that make you go hmm And he's exactly right. What are all of these pieces of military equipment doing back here? Some people trying to get a bead on exactly what they are and exactly where this is at so they can get down here and get some shots or get some footage for themselves. As you can see, military equipment here, they say Highway 67, just west of 59, many people wondering... Is this related to Jade Helm? There you go. I'll leave a link also over here to All News Pipeline that has a lot more information. They also talk about uh, some of the military activity we saw at a Walmart in Texas here recently for a second time. I did a video a while back showing the exact same thing, Humvees on a flatbed, but it was a different color semi and it was different Humvees and they were on there different. It was completely different. Now, as you can see here, hardware found back here in the woods, and it has many wondering: Are they portable prison cells? What could they be used for? Why are they there? Everything going down in Texas with Jade Helm—it's definitely raising some concern. I'll leave a link with more info. It's been Dabu Seven. Much love.
1: Okay, let's let's start with the nonsense that's here. As usual, some rational people have shown up in the combat sections, uh, the combat sections, the comment sections that actually have on-site knowledge. Um, Caleb says in the comments, those vehicles are to be demolished. No longer in service. A private contractor is demolishing them. I live here and work there. Get your facts straight. And by the way, it's Highway 67, not 57. Then this guy says, my facts straight. Get your assumption straight. And he goes on with this nonsense. And um, you also, if you scroll down a little bit more, you will find that not only is there a private contractor disassembling them, but they're sitting basically on a storage lot for Red River Army Depot to be refurbished and demilitarized. Old equipment is what they do there. So you have an Army Depot where private contractors work for the United States Army And disassemble and demilitarize equipment. So they may completely demolish them. They may, they may, in fact, strip them of everything that would make them weaponizable, and actually sell them as surplus because that's what they do. Let's also talk about this: their their Turkish M M270s. Um, they may or may not have been in the possession of the Turkish military at some point. I I don't know, but I do know where they make them. Now, they have made some in Europe, too, since we designed and started manufacturing them. But they make them in the United States of America. In fact, they make them in a place called Grand Prairie, Texas. Not so far from Texarkana, about a three-hour drive. Now, how do I know that they made MLRS systems in Grand Prairie, Texas? Because I used to be a contractor for Lockheed Martin in Grand Prairie, Texas. That's how I used to work there. And I developed and, and implemented, designed, and, and managed their fiber optic network for a campus so large that the desk phones that they had, they had two prefixes for There were more than 10,000 phone numbers on this campus. That's how big it is. And uh, it also had some components of Northrop Grumman and, and, and Laurel Vaught. And they got rolled into Lockheed. So I was there a long time. And if you went into the, like the public greeting area, like any member of the public could say, I want to take a public relations tour of Lockheed Martin's facility. And a PR officer would, would meet you up front and have you sign in at the desk and walk you through and show you all the things they were very proud of. And, and that you could go see an an entire full-size MLRS carrier that drove around a little track there. And in the, the lobby, there were scale models of all the equipment that they carried uh, and and scale models of the entire rocket, how it comes apart, the bomblets that go inside. Every This is the steel rain of Desert Storm. That's what this is. When they talk about steel rain and Desert Storm, you know, over in, in the Iraqi desert. Yeah, right? When it, and then 12 of these things go out, and each of them carries 644 bomblets, and boom, blows everything up. Yeah, they're deadly pieces of equipment when they're loaded. These things are stripped down, by the way. But they're made in Grand Prairie, Texas. This is U.S. military hardware. Yes, we sold them to Turkey. Yes, we sold them to Egypt. But they are not Turkish missile launchers. And, oh, by the way, maybe they would use them as mobile prisons? This is, this is like, beyond moronic. I mean, if I guess if you wanted your mobile prisons to be places where people had to be hunched over to fit in there and you could fit maybe ten people in the back of a slow-moving track vehicle that's at its end of life. Because, see, these things are being decommissioned now. This has nothing to do with Jade Helm. Absolutely nothing to do with Jade Helm. Oh, and then we saw a tractor trailer pull over at a Walmart carrying Humvees. And then these people saw one in the truck look different. They were transporting Humvees. Um, the United States military employs private drivers often to transport military equipment over long distances from one facility to another. And this may shock you, but. There's a lot of people that drive things from semi trucks to RVs that at times need to get off the road for a while. And what they need is a big area that can accommodate a big truck. And have you, have you ever seen a Walmart parking lot? Have you? I mean, a, a standard thing for truckers that used to do, and now it's hard to do because Walmart doesn't like it anymore, would be if they had to visit somebody while they were on a road, they would park at a Walmart, lock up their truck, and you know, parking lot's well lit and well displayed so that they would have, a, you know, less fear that somebody would break into it and have their friend come pick them up. I did that, you know, one time here with Mike Vertries. He left his vehicle at a Best Buy parking lot because apparently they were okay with that. Um, Yeah, see, if you've ever driven something beyond a pickup truck, a, a, a tractor trailer, an RV, a big trailer behind, a big boat behind a truck, then you know that you look out for big parking lots so you can take care of things. Uh, That's why, if you go to Cracker Barrel, they have space just for RVs. This is stupid, and this is where this high level of perception bias leads to moronicism. See, people like Alex Jones have been preaching, they're going to take over, they're going to come get you, they're going to put you in a FEMA camp for so long that the people that still buy into this shit can't let go of it and they can't believe it didn't happen yet, so it has to be soon. It has to be soon. Now, Alex himself pumped this thing up as they're coming to get you, and now Alex has backed up, well, this is incremental, they're not really going to do it. Any- this is just to get you accustomed to seeing the military. And So he-, he hyped it, he got all these people acting like idiots, and then he backs off because he doesn't want to be called on the bullshit at the end, and he knows damn well this is nothing but what they say. It is. This is a U.S. military training operation. And that's what the military does. They train. This is stupidity. You're going to see more stupidity. And if you want to challenge me on this, this is what I'm going to say to all of you people freaking out about Jade Helm. In September, when the training exercise is over, and nothing happens at all, infinity, and it's done, and nothing has happened, what will you say then? I bet you'll fall back to what Alex said. It's incremental. Again, One does not impose martial law using United States military special operations people. There's too few of them, and it's not the way martial law works. It isn't. One imposes martial law using local police, sheriff's departments, and, yes, guard and reserve troops, if you call them up for additional assistance. And one does not impose martial law incrementally. One imposes martial law like a steel curtain immediately. That's the only way that it works. If you are not a student of history, you are a fool of the present. That's why we have history segments. Now you know. And the next time you hear more nonsense like this, realize, again, every two-bit Alex Jones wannabe is going to hype this thing right up until the very end, and then they'll talk about something else and pretend this never happened, except when they reference it back like it was something that it wasn't. Please use your brains. Please think for yourselves. Don't buy into bullshit. Stop living in fear. It's not that I trust my government. It's that I trust tin hat conspiracy theorists even less. Even though they can be useful to me. You see, the tin hat conspiracy theorists can bring us useful information. It's good that we know about Jade Helm. I'm not so sure that we would know as much about it as we do if it wasn't for the tin hatters. I'm really not. I think in this case we might have. There's been no attempt by our government whatsoever to hide what's going on with Jade Helm. But there's been other things these tin hatters have brought to the surface for us. It's what they then do with the information and the, the e- extreme nonsense that they carry on with the information. Just like the government can be useful to us. The, the public work systems can be useful to us. These are the things that we have now, whether we want them or not. So we might as well learn how to use them. That will be something you'll hear come into today's show with my special guest. Again, uh, I have Mr. Frank Thrall online. Frank grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and has lived in Northern California his whole life. He is a peace officer in California as well as a graduate student in environmental agriculture at CSU, Chico, where he is researching key line design and broadacre applications. He's married. He has three children. In the past, Frank has worked in retail on extensive and intensive cattle ranches, Cut Firewood worked as a horse trainer and a riding instructor. He became aware of permaculture about four years ago and has since completed his PDC along with holistic management training and has co founded a local four H club to expose children to the importance of the environment and preparedness. He's here to talk to about uh, about that. He's here to talk to you about all of that and more with us today. And with that, hey Frank, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey
0: Jake, how's it going?
1: Going good, man. I'm glad to have you on the uh, show today. We're here to talk t- t- about what you're doing with jackrabbit farms, permaculture, and keyline, which uh, I'm learning more and more about as I've been working with Mark Shepard. I would call myself a novice on keyline stuff, so I think that'll be a, a really interesting thing to discuss. Be- before we get into all that stuff, though, I'd like you to maybe just introduce yourself to the audience so they can kind of connect with you and tell us like who you are, what you're doing, and how you got interested in this stuff in the first
0: place. Okay, so uh, I'm uh, about your age. Uh, I was born in 72, so I think you might be about a year older than me or so, but we're pretty much contemporaries. Uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, in Alameda County, so the big city in our county is Oakland, but I grew up actually in the southern part of the county. So when I was growing up, it was actually transitioning from a pretty uh, rural and agriculturally-based economy, um, starting to move into More of the urban sprawl that we see in the Bay Area now. So when I was a kid, there were still row crops and orchards that were, uh, that were a significant part of the land use in southern Alameda County. And that's transitioned over to strip malls, subdivisions, and light industrial and technology. So when I was, uh, when I started like kindergarten or whatever, you know, my, my aunts were probably about eight years older than me, were still able to take um FFA and 4-H and that kind of thing in high school and in the, the locale. By the time I got to high school, none of those programs were offered anymore. So I've seen a change in the, uh, the environment and land use, um in the Bay Area. And then, uh, I grew up, you know, and I kind of kicked around a few different things. I always had a kind of a steady job in retail and I did that graveyard and then during the day, daytime I'd be doing other things like pursuing interesting horses. I was training horses and starting coals and cutting firewood and doing things outdoors, just uh kind of kicking around a little bit. Going to school at the same time. So, it took me a while to get through a bachelor's degree, but I uh, got a lot of life experience at the same time. So, that was kind of like the early start of things for me. And then I uh, met my wife and then we moved out to the Central Valley, out to Modesto, California. And we've been out here probably, seems like probably the better part about 10 years or so now. So, that's pretty much where we're at
1: right now. And like I was reading your about us page on your site, and at one time, like everything you just described, like the uh, the, the farms going away and the farming programs going away, at one time you thought that was the solution, right? Just to bring back the the, the squat, this is a flat, square, forty acre, irrigated flatland farms.
0: Yeah, you know that was that's kind of what the example was, you know. And I I had definitely had a and interested in, in returning back to that kind of, those kind of roots. My grandfather built his house in, in Fremont, uh, California before it was incorporated. He, uh, as his family grew, he, he added onto his house, they gardened, um, you know, cause they he had eight children. So my grandmother was selling clothes and that kind of thing. And my mom was the oldest of eight. So there was kind of those homesteading skills, those kind of traditional skills that people just kind of had to know in order to make ends meet. Um, and then, you know, the example of agriculture was, you know, a 40-acre or more, you know, flat, irrigated, make it easy to work. And then um, when I got involved with cattle ranching, working for some cattle ranchers, um, I saw there's probably some different ways of doing things. Historically, um, when the Spanish had come out, they'd been much more, uh, I guess you say, vertically integrated, um, a lot more diversified in what they were doing uh, on the land. And that changed over time. Um and you know it's it's kinda of interesting to look at it. Um I came into permaculture probably about four years ago, four yeah, I think it's about four years ago when I first heard about permaculture. Um, because I was researching aquaponics and, and aquaponics really intrigued me because of the uh, efficiency of water um and then the whole systems design, just the fact that if you are messing up in any part of your system, it's gonna be repercussions someplace else. And if your system's working well, it shows that you're doing a good job of managing it and you basically have to run it at an organic level in order to um, maintain a healthy system so uh, that's kind of um my introduction to uh to permaculture
1: that's interesting the, I mean, uh, the, the reason i asked that though is because i think sometimes in permaculture we get um kind of typecast is like being anti farmer or anything and i think the majority of us Grew up with at least some level of reverence for farming, and it's not that we're opposed to it. It's just I think that we think that maybe now we can evolve to something more efficient, more environmentally regenerative than um, just let's plow and, and plant and plow and plant. And, and the reason I even asked you that question is because there are so many people out there that look at farms and they see that well, that's that's you know that's the country, that's nature. And I think that, you know, you mentioned on your blog the reason I threw out 40 acres. That was the number you had there. I think with 40-acre parcels and tree lines, it can be somewhat of a natural system. And it's these giant systems, you know, 1,000, 10,000 acres of the same thing that are really detrimental. And they call for all these inputs. With that in mind, you just brought something up I've never really thought about before. The instant feedback in aquaponics and if we start looking at larger systems that way we can see the damage but in aquaponics it kind of like shoves it in your face like your fish die or your plants die
0: right yeah exactly you got fish floating upside down in your in your tank there's something wrong with your filtration system right yeah um yeah for sure and then i'm kind of i'm kind of a, a, a bit of a geek i guess i guess i like to get into the details of things so when i started researching aquaponics i was taking a look at um at actually what they call um recirculating aquaculture systems, so the, the people that are kind of famous for that are uh, the people out of the University of the Virgin Islands, and they were doing uh, floating raft systems, and there's been quite a bit of academic work uh, presented from them, peer-reviewed papers discussing uh, uh, recirculating aquaculture systems, RAC, as you can see. So a lot of people will, will Google um, like aquaponics and then have a difficult time getting academic literature about it,
2: mm-hmm. but if
0: you were to do recirculating aquaculture systems or aquaculture, there's a lot more academic uh, work, work out there to review. Um, so I was really actually kind of concerned about, well, how am I going to keep my, my fish warm during the winter time out here to keep my system going? And I was trying to find a low-energy input way of doing that, and I ran across some videos by Paul Wheaton. And huh. Paul wheaton has got a great presence on the on the internet, and he sucks you in. You know, you start watching a couple of his videos on YouTube, and then you're off at the forums on Permies, and then you're listening to his podcast, and you're going, wow, you know. Uh, yeah, the next
1: thing you know, you're hearing, pretty cool
0: if, thing. if you
1: like this sort of thing, and you're done, right? <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> you're done. Yeah, and that's how I was actually introduced to your show, was through him. Wow. So there's great. probably about about four shows, four shows that I listen to, and it seems like... There's a lot of inner, inner, uh, re- relationship between those and overlap in some ways, so but each one kind of has its own unique perspective. But I think they all complement themselves really well. I'm like you, or like you were, I can long distances, right? About 83 miles one way. So I have the opportunity to uh, take in the, uh, long form podcast. So that helps me out a lot in dealing with my commute and making as, you know, efficient use of that time and traffic as possible. So.
1: Very cool. I'm, I'm glad you're listening. Um, what what was it that really resonated with you when you first found permaculture where you're like, yeah, I, I think this is something that, that really can work for me and something I really want to be part of? I mean, I know what you just said. You were looking for like a low-input way, and then you found Paul, but like, there's a systems-level thinking that based on some of the things on your your notes that I have here, I know you're into that level of a systems-level thinking. What 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 drug you all the way in? Was it just Paul and his creative stuff or was there something about the, the systems itself that, that made you realize this is really something
0: yeah that's a great question um, for me I, as I started getting into something I'm, I'm kind of exploring what it's about um, I started going to primary sources and I'm that guy that's actually you know made it through most of the, the designers manual you know okay. because the information's there um, it's pretty obvious uh, what Mollison was talking about in, in Holmgren as well, when that, when that was published, where they were coming from. And I think what resonated with me initially was just the, um, the prime directive. Uh, we all know what that is. Basically we're just responsible for ourselves and our children. You know, we can't go imposing our values or our worldview on other people. And we don't expect other people to do that. So for somebody who's libertarian mindset, um, that gelled very well, that, 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 you know, was not in conflict with my worldview. And then taking on the ethics of, um, you know, taking care of systems, taking care of people within the systems because people are actually part of the system, not apart from it, not separate from it, but integral to it. And then um, being non-extractive. Um, I think a lot of people really kind of focus on fair share, but ultimately fair share is for every person to decide for themselves, not to have an impose on, by an outside entity to decide what fair share it is. So, um, you know, I think those are the, the example,
1: main things. And then, if we hold right there for a second, I, I found out something very interesting recently that I didn't know. So, I've kind of been harsh on Holgram over the years for the whole changing of the third ethic from return to redistribute. And then I found out this little fact that kind of changes everything David Holgram is an anarchist. Right, So clearly an anarchist isn't for the government redistributing wealth uh, because they're not for the government in the first place. They want a stateless society. And so in examination of that with some folks like Toby Hemingway, we actually look at redistribute and go, okay, now that makes sense because what redistribute would mean then is redistribute to the people that are part of the production. So if you and me and 20 other guys got together and developed a system together, it would make sense that we would distribute the surplus among ourselves, and then we would make decisions among ourselves as to how to invest that to propagate more systems like we have. And, and then all of a sudden, like, that word doesn't bug me anymore. But in, until I knew that, and because the, I guess Paul calls them the purple people, have, you know, co-opted that as to be like some kind of social justice system Uh, justification in political space, we've had a real big divide on that ethic. But as soon as you know that, then all of a sudden that divide just goes like, poof, it's gone. And you can no longer hold up one of the co-founders as an example of that. And kind of wish David would have just put that in his bio on the back of the Permaculture One book. That would have made that all a lot easier.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, but ultimately it is for everybody to decide for themselves. So even the people who are out there who have that, you know, collectivist mindset and and are okay with imposing it on other people, you know, I don't, I don't expect that I'm going to be able to convince them differently. Sure. Um, I just, you know, and 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 that's one thing for me especially is that I believe in having a right to self-defense, but I'm not an advocate of violence. Right. I I believe in nonviolent change. Um, and I think you've you've articulated the same thing. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be going out looking for a fight, but if, you know, somebody's going to be hurting me or my family, you know, we're going to protect ourselves. So, um, and there's, and there's, there's bigger issues too that, that people have to be concerned about. So, um, you make a change where you can, you make a difference where you, where you know you can be effective in making that change, I guess.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's another, I mean, I'm opposed to violence to, to enact change for a variety of reasons. One is because I'm opposed to aggression, uh, standing on non-aggression principle, then you can't then use aggression to get what you want. But I'm also opposed to it for practical matters. I don't believe that long-term it works very well. It it just simply begets more aggression. And that means that even if you can impose what you want for now, then as soon as there's a group that's more powerful than you, if the template is aggression, then their will gets imposed. And so I think the only way you can have lasting, meaningful change is to, to sell your idea based on its merits and you can make somebody do something with aggression, but you don't actually convince them with aggression. You convince them to be afraid of you, you convince them to capitulate, but you don't get buy-in, you don't get loyalty, you don't get devotion. It, it's a leadership principle too. I mean, Leaders that are, that, are, that are assholes, for lack of a better term, get stuff done, but they don't get stuff done cons- consistently and everybody in their group is just waiting for them to fail. Where leaders that lead through action and, and, and inspiration, uh, and, and actually sell what, they're, what they have to their people and make them want to be part of it. If that leader falls, then their people pick them up, and, and that's like there's just no case that can be made for a meaningful long-term change with aggression. It just it's never worked. It's always resulted in some bigger tyrant with a bigger stick taking over and doing worse later,
0: or the economy that it's built on eventually. Collapses under its own weight, correct? You know, for, for whatever reason, whether it's whether it's plague comes through and, and wipes out you know 50% of your population, or there's the biggest next empire right on your border that comes in and changes things. Um, it's not sustainable, and ultimately there's always going to be change. That's part of part of what's going on. There's always going to be secession, I guess, whether it's in the landscapes or it's within government and political philosophers going back to Plato and Aristotle talked about that, that we really aren't ever going to be in a, a fixed stasis, I guess, as far as governments go. And there's going to be an evolution of how governments go from tyranny to, to um, you know, rule of a one to rule of a few to rule of many. And then that cycle repeats itself over and over, whether for good or for bad.
1: Yeah, um, def- definitely. Um, kind of bringing it back into the the practical side of things for a bit here. What are some of the things yeah. you've, you've been doing to implement per- permaculture in your daily life? Permaculture is one of these things that can bifurcate into two classes. Like some people really love to talk about it, but eh, practice is a—it's an etherical thing. There's always a reason. I don't have land yet or whatever. Um, but based on what I'm looking at, you're, you're getting some stuff done. So what are some of the ways that you're implementing maybe the, the practical aspects of permaculture, maybe the thinking aspects into your life?
0: Yeah, so for my wife and I, you know, when I, when I first came across this word and I started talking to her about it um, and I started researching more, one of the things for me was I need to go and get my P V C. And I researched PVCs for a while. And this is before uh, Jeff Lotton's online one came out, his first online one came out. So I went and did a traditional two-week, 72-hour one at uh, Occidental Art and Ecology Center. I don't know if you're familiar uh, with those guys, but... They're up in Occidental California, so that's Northern California, uh Sonoma County. And they've been out there for over twenty years now. And uh very stable kind of intentional community that's doing excellent work in the permaculture uh arena, uh, excellent educators. Um, I think they were pretty close to uh their thousandth their one thousandth um, P V C certificate when I was there. I think the class after me is actually the class that broke their one thousand uh, students. Um so we got that done, and then my wife completed her PDC with Jeff Lawton online with his first one. So both of us have got our PDCs, and it was interesting going through the PDC with my wife, when, you know, with Jeff. Um, I think the quality of his online PDC was outstanding, uh, especially considering it was the first one up the gate for him. Uh, he made a huge effort on making that successful, and uh, everybody I've talked to that's been through it uh, has been really happy with it. Um so we took that kind of basis, that, that foundation, and we started kind of uh, trying to implement those things around our house. Uh, we got rid of our front lawn. We don't have a front lawn anymore. Uh, started developing the food forest out front. We went to all mulch, all mulch out front. And in a drought situation in California, you know, when we're supposed to be cutting back like 30% on our annual water use, we're not hurting nearly as bad as some of some of our neighbors who they don't know quite how they're going to keep their lawns alive. Um, started putting in our perennial systems, looking to do the food forestry thing up front, uh, brought chickens under our property. So we're doing the small lot suburban homesteading with chickens. Um, and then we're reaching out, um, in our community to people who are like-minded. Our kids go to an alternative public school, uh, program. So it's an open plan program, which includes a lot of parent participation as part of the core principles around that, um, It's experiential learning for the kids, and it's literature based. So when you go into an open-plan classroom, sometimes it looks like chaos, but it's actually focused chaos, where the kids are kind of learning in an environment where they're interacting with themselves, with the teachers, with their with parents, all different parents within the program. Um, So that's that's been another way that we've done some outreach, and then we started a 4-H club. So. I can kind of give you a little bit of a backstory on that if you'd like to hear about it.
1: Yeah, I would, because I think that that's an example of, I think some of us in permaculture are in some ways a bit agriculturally elitist. You know what I mean? Like, well, we don't plow, and we don't do straight lines, and we are all about what we don't do, but we don't realize, I think, at least some of us don't, that there's this incredible... Uh, thriving uh, group of communities and systems within agriculture, and that's that's why I kind of like pushed you back on that a little bit at the beginning to, to drive that root home. That that's where most of us come from. We 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 want to farm because we saw that and what it could do, and now we see where we can go to like that next level. Like I don't know, think about it like skateboarding. You're about my age, like you said. So when we were kids, like young kids, like skateboards were like these things made up, uh, we like uh, plexiglass, not plexiglass, fiberglass, right? And they were like these long things, and if you could just stay on it, man, you were you were doing something. If you could stay on it, and then by the time we were like in high school, junior high school, you know, they started to get these uh, more advanced skateboards, and, and next, you know, you guys like Tony Hawk came along and had this advanced. But yeah. it all started with that stupid red plexiglass thing that we sat on and rode down a hill, and that's kind of how I see with with agriculture. Like, yeah, that's the old model. But, boy, there's a lot that can be done there with those resources. And 4-H is a great one. So I'd I'd love to hear about that.
0: So, um, yeah, we went out. Even before I did my PVC, we, we'd we gone out to the Northern California Perm- Permaculture Convergence. Uh, at that time, it was in Castro Valley, so it was in Northern California. So it was within driving distance for us to go to that, and we're there. And I think you're familiar with Eric Olson, right? Yep. Yeah, so Eric was giving a presentation on um, – bringing permaculture to business and creating a permaculture-based business. And Eric's a super inspiring speaker. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of that. You know, he knows how to relate to an audience uh, and convey a message in a way that's pretty engaging. And, you know, at the end of his talk, he's like, well, you know, it's not just about me. What do you guys think he can do? And I had a moment of inspiration. I'm like, you know, we could, we could basically, you know, go into 4-H and take advantage of the infrastructure that's already there, uh, basically an invisible structure, let's say, that's already there, and through that, you know, uh, propagate the concepts of permaculture. Uh, why recreate or reinvent a wheel when there's something that's already there? So my wife and I uh, started going through the process of starting a new club, which was a daunting task. It wasn't like, uh, hey, you just want to start a new club, uh, just sign up here and, and, you know, bring the kids in we had to come up with bylaws and get approvals and like anything with government, because um, 4-H is basically managed through the land grant universities in each state. So for us at the University of California, Davis, that administers 4-H. So when we were reading about it, we were really, uh, really happy with some of the things that the University of California was saying, all of their non-discriminatory policies apply to 4-H. So boys and girls are in it together and you're not allowed to discriminate based on, you know, any, any ground. So whether it's sexual orientation, uh, country of origin, religion, discrimination just isn't tolerated within 4-H, at least for the policies of the University of California. Um, but we thought that was pretty cool. Uh, there's also the support of things like insurance, coverages, insurance, and that thing for liability, and then just curriculum as well. Um, one of the things that we did want to do is create our own club, not just go into uh, an existing club and try to carve out a niche there. Um, We thought that there was enough like-minded parents in our area that would um, kind of appreciate a sustainability focus in 4-H that we didn't need to go into an existing club. And that was some of the pushback that we got from from the local agency here is that they kind of were trying to push us toward that direction. But I think we're in our third year now of the 4-H club. Um, We had a Membership is somewhere around 40 kids at one time. I think we're probably about 20, 25 kids now, but it's pretty steady. Uh, we focus on projects like um, emergency preparedness, which to people who are into prepping. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of our parents was actually an employee, uh, an administrator at the Office of Emergency Services here in our county. So she holds her um, project um, at the OES offices. They took trips up to National Weather Service, uh, did some, a lot of cool things. You know, went and assisted um, Red Cross on first aid and CPR training. So that was, that was a cool project. Another one that we've done was an outdoor adventure. So it's kind of similar to what you'd expect for Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but we have boys and girls together going out and learning basic hiking and backpacking and camping skills and that kind of thing.
1: That's very cool. And, I mean, it's kind of a, a side subject that I didn't realize we were going to get into because you took to maybe give people some advice on how they might be able to emulate that. Like, what's the process? I mean, I've never even thought of, okay, let's establish a 4-H club utilizing the existing, like you called it an invisible structure, the existing bureaucracy, for lack of a better word, and the, the credibility. Like, if I go to a school right now, I go down to Azel High School and say, I want to start a permaculture club in your high school. Do you have any kids here, Mr. Spearco? No. And they th- probably think I'm some pervy guy that wants access to their kids talking about the earth spirits and mud fairies or something. Um, but if I take that initiative and go in with, with some parents of the students that are there and I can get that buy-in, because this is kind of a rural outskirts of the Dallas-Fort Worth area and come in with the legitimacy of 4, 4-H, well, oh, we've heard of it. like I think so many times with uh, anything involving government or anything that's public works whatever – if they've heard of it in a positive way, then we can look at it. If I've never heard of this, no matter what you say, I could lose my cushy bureaucratic job, so I don't necessarily <laughs> want to do that, but you know, I could get fired for this. But no one has ever been fired from school for bringing a 4-H club in. If it didn't work, well, you should have, you know, Tom, it's, we're not going to hold this against you. We expected that 4-H would work, right? So how, how can we do this?
0: Yeah, so we went down to our uh, ag extension office, which is where 4-H in our county is administered. Um, there's actually somebody whose job it is to administer all the 4-H clubs in our county. So um, I'm in Stanislaus County. I'm kind of proud of our agric- agricultural production. Uh, our crop report from a year and a half ago was that we had $3.6 billion in agricultural production in our county. Um, that's third largest in our state. I don't know what the other two counties were that beat us, but... The uh, statistic came down to something along the lines of having in our county more agricultural production than the whole state of Louisiana, which is incredible when you think about it. I'm sorry.
1: No, I said, "Wow, that's that is impressive.
0: Your uh, county more
1: agriculture than the state of Louisiana."
0: That I just want to be clear. That's what. Yeah, that's what the. Wow. Yeah, that's what our Ag Commissioner told us. And I looked I looked it up on the Internet, and in billions of dollars, we had the state of Louisiana beat on agricultural production. And so that's, that's commodities. That's not value added. But that's no, but commodities still, I mean, that, our, that, that says something about
1: the amount of exposure to ag there is in your county. That's that's pretty amazing.
0: Exactly. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. We're very entrenched in a very conservative um um conventional way of doing things out here, although there are some examples of or organic farms that are out here. Um, there, there is a, a slow food movement within California. Um, so when we go into the Ag Extension Office trying to talk about creating a new 4-H club, you know, the expectation is, well, it's all the same, just choose a club that's already in existence. And we're like, well, we're kind of coming at it a little bit differently. You know, we want our kids to understand that if they raise a hog, That they're going to get the going rate, you know, that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is saying is the price for pork goes when they when they go to sell that hog, or they're going to get you know a couple dollars per pound if they take it to the auction. We don't want them going to the county fair and expecting to get outrageous numbers Uh, because there's people that are philanthropic that go to the county fair and they want to buy buy the steers at a high price to support. H but a lot of times the kids come away maybe with a little bit of an unrealistic expectation about what agriculture is <laughs> yeah. all about
1: i'm gonna i'm gonna sell fifty thousand dollar steers for the rest of my life right
0: <laughs> right <laughs> that'd be awesome right it would, yeah really well
1: i would totally but, um, have some on my free acres I, I could have four of those right now and i could do really well on 200 grand a year and all i would do is sell those but that's not the real world
0: uh, and that's and that's important to sustainability and, and teaching kids realistic expectations and understanding that cycle of inputs and outputs and what to do with them. So, yeah, so we go in there and we're talking and we say, well, we really want to create our own club. We're pretty adamant about that. Our focus is definitely going to be on sustainability. And we kind of got a little bit of a, you know, I got a feeling of like, oh, boy, here come some purple breathers. <laughs> and that's not where we're at. But when you're in our our locale, anything that deviates from the norm or conventional is kind of looked at with a little bit of skepticism. And I can understand why people have that that viewpoint. Um, they feel like I think a lot of people out here feel like they're under attack for uh, managing their their management practices. And a lot of them have improved their management practices over the years. You know, just um, out of necessity. Uh, so when you feel like you're always being Kind of marginalized by by a larger groups um, about what you're doing that actually supports you know the whole country with agricultural production. Uh, it can kind of give you make you have a jaded view, I would think. So um, yeah,
1: and you bring up a really. So great... So we work through. I, mean, I think we have a little bit of a delay. So if you ever think I'm cutting you off, it's there's like a, a delay in our our comms here. So. Uh, I, I want to make you aware of that because you're hearing me, I think, a couple seconds behind me talking, so we're dealing with the magic of Skype. Anyway, I, what I wanted to say real quick before you continued there was I think there's uh, a big lesson in what you just said, that the position is relative to the, the position of the other party. So, like, there's people who would call me right-wing. Well, if you're a communist, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty right-wing. But then there's people who would consider me very left-wing. Well, if you're a, you know... Uh, an evangelical conservative Republican that you know would have been overjoyed at a President Mitt Romney. I, I look pretty left as well. So I think that you're right that when people are in conventional agriculture, that anything alternative looks kind of hippie-ish, I guess. And we need to remind ourselves of that. And I think the vocabulary we use maybe becomes really important at at some point along the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it comes down to respecting people where they're at and and understanding that, you know what, they're the ones that are in the stewardship role, right? The people who don't have access to land. I know you talked about that over the last year. I've heard you talk about it quite a bit. People complain about not having access. And that's something that my wife and I were just able to do recently is get access to one acre of leased ground, which the intention was to go for aquaponics there. Like I kind of took a sidestep, a little bit of a detour, uh, when grad school opportunity opened up to me. But uh, ultimately, I guess the point is, is that we don't want to alienate those people that are in stewardship roles. Uh, we want to definitely try to create a, uh, a dialogue that respects everybody and understands um, their needs as well. I mean, if we sit there and start telling people that they need to cut their yield down to a, a, uh, a level that's not sustainable for them and their needs and to support their families, um, you're not going to get buy-in from them.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing is like one of the things permaculture has lacked up until now, and I think we're starting to to get it done, is projects at scale. So if you're talking to a mm-hmm. farmer managing 500 acres, and that 500 acres was in his family for three generations, and it used to be 1,500, he sold off 1,000, or he did he sold off 500, his dad sold off 500 to keep the 500 they have, and they're killing themselves, and they've been working, and either they're, they're, they're farming hogs or corn or beans, it doesn't matter what, and you start showing him, like, my backyard, he'll, he'll be like, you know what, that's really nice, I think it's really cool, I wish more people would do that, but that doesn't translate to my 500 acres. And what I'm seeing does translate to 500 acres is something you're involved with, which is key line. Now, I've talked a lot about contour-based design, swale systems, Can you kind of explain what Keyline is and what attracted you to that?
0: Sure. Um, So when you start hearing about permaculture and you start looking at what the the foundation kind of disciplines were behind it, Keyline was integral to Mollison's development of permaculture. I think he gives credit to it or Holmgren gives credit to uh, P.A. Yeomans, the guy who came up with the concept of Keyline design. Um, And they, they, they said that it's integral to permaculture. So when you look at that and kind of being the geeky guy that I am, the, I kind of like to look at the origins of things and what came from them and started looking at, at uh, key line. And then also my interest in broad acre agriculture, especially uh, in rangeland. So I'm not as interested in row crops or in, in orchards as I am in um, rangeland ecosystems, oak savannas. Um, traditional landscapes that supported a huge population in California prior to European contact um and were managed uh very intensively i guess you would say by native peoples here and understanding that um those ecosystems uh that we see now represented in our rolling hills and stuff aren't what were here prior to European contact uh California was uh very largely uh represented with perennial grasses. And that changed with the introduction of European livestock grazing uh with the Spanish and the continuing on after the after uh California came into the into the Union. And now we are predominantly uh, represented with annual grasses that aren't even native. So uh to me the opportunity to link restoration um so Restoration agriculture, I guess, you know, Mark Shepherds talked about that, up with um, restoration ecology um, in the grasslands and oak savannas is, is really intriguing. So Keyline definitely applies there. So Yeoman's, um, the history on him is he was, he was a mining engineer in uh, Australia. Um, he was doing some farming as well and uh, developed a system of approaching land form to harvest water very efficiently. And he kind of came up with what's known as the scale of permanence. I know you're aware of it. Um, if you want me to, I can kind of kind of go through it real quick. Oh, please, please do. Yeah, so Youngman basically said that there are different levels of permanence. Uh, the most permanent thing that we're going to deal with, and the hardest thing for humans to change is climate. Uh, this next thing would be land form or land shape, uh, then followed by water, and then roads, trees, Buildings, and then subdivision is what it says in this book, but uh, that would mean like things like fences. And then finally, soil uh, is the thing that is least uh, permanent. Our soil condition is the least permanent thing that we can deal with in an agricultural setting. But it's also the thing that we can either change for the best or for the worst, I guess, um, relatively easily and over a shorter amount of time. So with that idea in, in mind he uh, started implementing his design processes in Australia at a farm called Barneys, And if you have access to Google Earth, you can actually find Your Barney still and see where it's been encroached on by subdivision. But uh, a good number of his ponds, his original ponds, are still viewable from Google Earth. And you can actually go down in Street View and kind of take a look at Google stock photos that they have uh, from Street View and see the ponds. And it's really impressive, um, what he did there, and how he allowed topography and landform to kind of indicate how to design in his landscape. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good pretty good introduction to what was going on with the development of Keelan.
1: So as you decided to start using uh, this uh, yourself, uh, what have you done with Keyline? I know you, you guys even have a, a Keyline plow that's available from your website that people can rent.
0: Yeah, so in looking at Broadacre, you know, when I was doing my PBC. I was like, where, where do I want to focus? And for me, it definitely is Broadacre. It definitely is a California Mediterranean ecosystem. It's what I'm familiar with. It's what I've grown up in. And I know that you can... You, you can be critical of California and our politics out here, but it's a it's a beautiful state. It has huge potential, and you know I'd like to like to see improvement in it. So, uh, we wanted to start kind of getting keyline out there, more information about it. At one point, my wife and I were working hard to try to put on a workshop, and we wanted to uh, rent a plow, um, and we were unable to get access to a plow, which basically meant that we couldn't put the workshop on. So, my wife and I talked about it, and Said, you know what let's just take that limitation off the table let's let's go ahead and buy a plow and put on a workshop and get some information out there about key line and then offer the plow as a a rental tool because it doesn't make a lot of sense i guess for people with smaller acreages you know 10 20 40 acres or whatever to go out and put down for a plow and you're only going to probably do two to three years of treatments and then you're going to have this piece of iron in the front of your, in the front of funnier property, not really doing much. So we thought that would be a, a good model. Um, during that time, I actually was able to research going to grad school, and um, got accepted up to uh, California State University of Chico, where we're actually going to be doing uh, research on the uh, efficacy of the keyline subsoiling. So when people think about keyline, a lot of times what they're thinking about it's a subsoiler. It's a plow. It's that tangible thing that goes out and does things, and, you know, we can walk away from it and 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 have a tangible feeling about it. But uh, Keyline's more than that. It's a design process um, that's based on that scale of permanence that I talked about earlier. So what we're going to be doing is taking actual measurements, uh, soil samples, looking for soil biology increases, increase in storage quality, quantity, and that kind of thing over about a five-year period. So typical graduate school programs are uh, 24 months, maybe 36 months. Um, we're going to be looking to do three years of treatments and then two years of observations afterwards. So it's long-term commitment to the research, but primarily because in my literature review, there's not a lot out there um, that's uh, quantitative about key lines. There's all kinds of anecdotal stories. People are, are very happy with it, all the way from uh, Australia. Obviously, Darren Daughter is a huge advocate of it. Um, we've seen good success with it in West Texas uh, on cattle ranches. Uh, I think it's called the Circle Ranch in West Texas. has had great, great success with it. They were, they've been able to actually get um, buy-in from the NRCS and doing cost share in their treatments with Keyline in Texas. So, um, the anecdotal evidence is very, very encouraging, but there's no science out there on it. So that's what we're trying to do, is get some science out there and, uh, and move it forward.
1: Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting thing. So when I first learned about key line, uh, I learned about it from the standpoint of, you know, a, a yeoman's plow and key line plowing and moving the water off contour. And in contrast to a contour-based, swale-based design for more of a forest or savanna forest uh, hybrid system, which also can be used as a, as a grazing system. And then I met Mark Shepard, who puts in swales on uh, 1% grade or maybe a little less, depending on what he's trying to accomplish. And, okay, so a key line system can have swales be a part of it, also have key line plowing going along with it. And then Darren Daughtry says, no, a, key, a, a swale is not a key line component and to be frank <laughs> i'm confused as hell at this point what are, what are your thoughts on that maybe you don't have any better answer than i do but to me i guess i come from the school of thought is it all works there might be reasons i might want to move water with a swale uh a little more than just hold it in place i get the plowing thing i understand the concept of moving water from the valley to the ridges uh plowing can do that swales can do that there's a lot of different ways that can happen w- what are your thoughts there
2: well,
0: of course. So, key line is a bigger design uh, approach. I think first of all, and subsoiling is is a tool in the, in a toolbox, um, just like swales are a tool in a toolbox, or hugo is a tool in a toolbox. So, Correct. any tool not applied correctly, it's not going to probably get you, you know, the kind of results that you want. Or, uh, so I, I think that's one thing to take into consideration. I think the, exa- the examples at Barney's show that there were diversion ditches that were being used to divert water across the landscape. Uh, Yeomans was using gravity-fed systems uh, high in his landscape and moving water across it from from um, drains into the dams to flood-irrigate uh, pastures. So, I mean, there's definitely, there was, I think the most permacultures would look at those diversion uh, ditches as swales. Um as far as the subsoiling um, patterns, uh, that's something to be very careful with. Um, I think Mark Shepherds talked about it, and he said that you know he thinks he's probably one of the few people that's actually read the Yeoman's Water for Every Farm book and had talked to him because in my reading of it, it oftentimes leaves you scratching your head, not quite understanding what's going on. It's not an accessible book. It's not a book that's easy to read and understand. No, and it's, I've been told it's, it's there are actually some mistakes in it.
1: Yeah, I think that what Mark said that I think is relevant to what you're saying is that it's kind of a book that's evolved over time. And, like, they actually figured out things, Yeomans figured out things later on that he was wrong about in the beginning and added them in little pieces to the book over time but never went back and fixed the original incorrect I mean, that was the way Mark was explaining it to me. Because I tried to read it, and I couldn't. I, I, it was like, I mean, if you can read the designer's manual, that's tough enough. That was, that was hard.
0: Yeah, I, well, part of it is, is the book that's in, it's in print right now, Water for Every Form, isn't Yeoman's original work. Um, I think his original work was The Keyline Plan. Um, the, the book that, that is accessible now through, like, Amazon, and that kind of thing, is actually put out by his son. It's edited by his son. And Darren Daughtery, I think, has kind of said that there might be some mistakes or, or details in there that aren't quite accurate or correct for the implementation of the keyline subsoiling patterns. Um, Darren has an excellent webinar on, on keyline um, that people are interested in. It. I think it's probably well worth the, uh, the time to take a look at that uh he talks about what the key line geometry really is and understanding that yeah um, in principle that's what we're doing. We're moving water from the valley at a higher elevation out to the ridge at a lower elevation. So water flows downhill and that's what we're doing with it in key line when we're when we're subsoiling. Um, but when we're doing other things like deciding where we're gonna put our ponds, you know uh, or where we're going to put our roads, our fences, our buildings, that's what the the larger Keyline design system is actually addressing.
1: Yeah. Do you ever feel like, this is how I feel sometimes, like I listen to Mark and I'll find his places he has discrepancies with Darren and I'll listen to Darren and, and where he pushes, let's say, Keyline over uh, a, a Lawton-esque style system based on contour and says, well, it's broad acre. And I'm thinking I can totally do broad acre with either, And, you know, then you look at what Steph Holter does. And sometimes I feel like I'm listening to like Da Vinci and Michelangelo and and stuff argue about the best way to sculpt or paint. And it's like you have these brilliant minds with competing ideas. and, And the reality is they're all brilliant. They just have different takes on how to use these tools that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there's that. I think you also touched on it a little bit earlier too. There's, there's an evolution of understanding, right? And when you first come out with this idea, of, you know, if you're yeoman's and you're like, you know, I can move gravity by, by, uh, water by gravity across my landscape. I can start doing these kind of, putting in my, my dams. You know, and then you, you realize, hey, you know what, this didn't work so well or, or this maybe works better. And also technology improves. Um, just like, what could, what could he have done with portable electric fence, right? And how would he have maybe design the system differently if he would have had that tool available to him at that time. So we, we've got to take those things into, into consideration and, and remember that we're building on a foundation that was laid by people that were really smart, that were doing things that were different. Uh, they're doing things differently than their peers and their contemporaries. And their systems are still in existence and they still look beautiful and they're still effective. So... Um, you know, sometimes those guys are at uh, such a high level, maybe I'm just not going to get the finer details of what they're saying. Uh, but, uh, you try to, you try to do the best where you can. Uh, one thing I do know is Darren's coming out with a, a book on, uh, with the, from the Regrarian's website. And I think he's hopefully going to add a lot more clarity to, uh, Keyline through that book. It looks like he's definitely building on a Keyline foundation along with permaculture and holistic management, which for me, are the three disciplines that pers- a person who's going to be involved in broad acre really should be uh, familiar with, if not, you know, extremely competent with. Uh, I think all three of them complement um, the other very well.
1: Do you want to say those three disciplines again for anybody that missed that? Very much...
0: uh, protoculture, uh, per- uh, key line design, and then holistic management. Okay. So we're kind of... You know, another guy, you know, Alan Savory, another guy who's out there kind of uh, not doing things conventionally and, um, is different than a lot of his contemporaries. And I think he's received a, a lot of grief. Uh, and yeah. well, the vegetarians are very uh,
1: agree with him too. The vegetarians are just upset because he uses cattle and that's, that's bad if you're a vegetarian, I guess, but his results are. Like there, there's the you know the old saying of you you judge a tree by its fruit, and when you look at the restoration of land this guy's done, you just stand there in awe. And that, but you you bring up a great guy. That's another example, and it's why I wanted you to kind of go back and re-say those disciplines because he thinks we're all nuts. You know I've talked to him and he's like I don't get this swale thing. I just take cattle, I put them in there on a certain pattern, and I move them around. And you ask these questions and you get these answers, and you do this, and the land comes back. And he's like, I mean, he doesn't even get why we mess around with a, a swale or a key line plow. He just puts a cow in. And yet all these systems work, and I think they do work better tied together.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was I was at a, a grazing conference, and the, the question kind of came up about, you know, um, whether or not key lines effective or not. And a person had said, the person who was presenting said that, you know, if you have heavy, compacted soils, you know, some people might advocate Keyline, but that person really didn't advocate it. And um so I, I had an opportunity to speak with the, the the presenter later and kind of on a one-on-one. basis, well, you know, um, what are your issues with Keyline? You know, what, what are your criticisms of it? Uh, what are your critiques of it? And they really couldn't list any. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, somebody in one discipline, let's say it's holistic management, and they're not seeing that another discipline, key line, might have something to offer to them. Um so when you get when you get siloed, um, I think it's detrimental. And guys like Darren Daughtery are definitely not stuck in one silo, you know. Uh the work that he's done. Um another another good example from in our country, Owen Hablinpool, are are you familiar with Owen? Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen his YouTube presentation where he presented at the International Permaculture Convergence in no, Jordan? No, I haven't seen,
1: no, I haven't seen that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good uh, video. You know, it's probably like an hour, 15 minutes long or whatever. Um, but he talks there about a project that they worked on, I think in New Mexico, in some old car- uh, cotton farming grounds there that had basically gone out of production because of uh, just... Uh, being salted up too much, and work that they had done there, and the approach of holistic management and permaculture and team line design to moving that ecosystem forward. um, And he does a really good job. Uh, Are you familiar with resilient science?
1: Yeah, I mean, Owen actually uh, was part of the assessment team that we put together for the Alcoa project we were just on. Um, So I've I've talked to him quite a bit. I just hadn't seen that presentation you were talking about.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome presentation. A word that comes up, like sustainability, uh, comes up. In other words, resilience. And I think Owen does a good job of really explaining the concepts around resilient science. And one of the concepts is that you can get into a very resilient uh, condition. That's not a condition that you want, right? You get a situation that's very weedy, and it's hard to bounce out of that that state into the state that you want or, or desirable plans. That'd be an example of resilience. It's just a resilient state that we don't really want. So it takes a lot of energy to kind of get you over that hump into the, the next step of succession, I guess you'd say. So he, he talks about it that there, but then he talks about how, what, they were, what they were faced with at their project in New Mexico. Unfortunately on that project, um, I don't think there was any baseline data gathered and, um, I don't think they went forward gathering any data um, afterwards either. So if anybody out there is listening and knows about any scientific work around Keyline, any peer-reviewed articles or anything like that, I'd I'd love to get that information forwarded off to me if that's possible. But, um, you know, those are just things to take into into consideration with that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Can you talk about maybe some of your plans for what you want to do in the future and maybe some of the things you're doing right now um, as far as, like, projects and what have you?
0: Yeah, right now I think the, the main focus is, you know, I've got my day job, so I'm doing that. And um, and then going on with grad school, also focusing on that, getting that taken care of. And once grad school's done, um, the, the question will come up, you know, whether they not to continue on even further within school and academia? Um, my wife currently teaches at the community college level out here, and that's a, that took like a pretty good gig. I think it's also an opportunity to touch the minds of young people. So as I'm in school right now, you know, I'm in my early, mid-40s, and I'm in class with people that I'm old enough to be their dad. And a lot of them haven't heard the word permaculture. They're not familiar with the concepts of key line. Um A lot of them have had never heard of holistic management before. Um, so there's an opportunity to touch uh, eager, receptive young minds that are intelligent and understand that there's something wrong. With the way we're at right now, the status quo right now definitely is um, needs to be fixed. So, and I think um, unless you show people an alternative, it makes it very difficult for them to to make a step to make a change. When the only the only alternative shown to them, the only choice that they have is to follow the conventions, Um, it makes it tough. So I think that's a, a major goal is to try to give more education out to young adults um just to make them aware of more uh possibilities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really cool. And um are you doing any level of consulting right now with with, with folks?
0: Yeah, we we have the, the file for rant. Uh people can come to our website, ww.jackrabbit farms, all one word dot com. Uh, and can contact us through the website. Um, We will come out and do some some consultation on key lime and on plow rental and on permaculture design. Um, My wife and I are are currently working at our kids' school on implementing a school garden there. One of the teachers is really active in trying to get a school garden grant going and has asked us to help out with that with uh, some other teachers as well. So that's something else that we're working on. And then trying to be an example. by Instead of putting stuff in our backyard, you know, we put stuff in our front yard so that people can see an alternative to the conventional lawn and, you know, when food's growing on the trees, people go, well, you know, would I rather be mowing today or <laughs> would I rather be out picking a couple apples off a tree, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's that's fun.
1: I, I've been trying to skin the whole school gardens thing. I have a, a sister-in-law that's a teacher, and she's talked about it. And what it ended up coming back to wasn't even money. They're like, it's 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 groundskeeping. We have a budget for that. It's not that much money to put some, you know, raised beds in and, and tie into an existing irrigation system. What, what it came down to is, well, it's a garden, and it's designed to produce food. And, you know, some of our most productive months are June, July, and August. And there's nobody in school, and who's going to take care of it? So... I've been trying to push that towards more of a permanent solution. Let's put in some trees. Let's, let's understand forest ecology. We can teach the kids about forest ecology with that and all. And it, it, it's weird. It's like all of a sudden, oh, now that's, that's something permanent, right? That's, that's a tree, you know. That's like it's going to be there. Like we can't just change our mind. As though like, so it would be harder to get rid of a tree than it is a, a raised bed. Uh, So I've been working on that one, and it's kind of a weird thing. Like, as soon as you start talking about bushes and trees and stuff in, and, you know, then you have maybe your harvest in the fall, the the automation can take care of things that are in the summer, and your groundskeepers can just basically not weed eat under the tree will mulch. It it all went awry, and maybe I should have just went with the vegetable gardens, but I was trying to head off that whole, you know, who's going to take care of it for three months because, well, Well,
0: it's going to come. That's a perfect perfect opportunity. I'm sorry, Jack. Go ahead. Right. I think that's a perfect opportunity for, like, the 4-H clubs to come in, right? So where The yeah. 4-H club would be like, oh, we'll take care of it during the summertime. You know, that's, you know, and our, our 4-H members, most of them are going through our kids' schools anyway, so it's their peer group. That's... So that kind of makes sense, you know? And then the model of education or the educational program that our kids are in is parent participation. So we've talked about that. And maybe, you know, we have to give a certain number of hours per kid per week uh, the volunteer time—that's kind of the contract that we sign to show that we are going to be actively engaged in our kids' education. And different people have limitations on when they can give that time and what kind of time they can give, and in their skill set. But you know, maybe over the summertime, when it's six to eight weeks when kids aren't in school, you know, a different family each week kind of steps up to make sure that the the garden is okay. Or, so there's yeah. there's a solution. You
1: know, that's be creative about what them, I think. And, T- to me, that's like a pattern recognition thing. So, like, I didn't know about – I knew about 4-H. I didn't understand the tool that it was because I didn't get how it worked and uh, that you could actually start one and all of these other things. That was just the thing that is. So there's an example of, okay, there's a tool available that you could easily use if you understood the tool was available for that purpose. So I think it was like you are talking about people getting siloed into a a design science – That it's the same thing. So, like, if I would, if you would have asked me, well, how do I solve uh, a dry, arid condition uh, where I want to graze animals um, 10 years ago? Uh, Irrigation? Right? I mean, that would have been my honest, like, not sure if I'm right answer. Like, and then now I could give you maybe four or five different ways you could solve that problem. But it comes down to knowing the tools there. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail type thing, right? So, like, the fact that now, like, you take another run at that. Now, I don't have time to run a 4-H, but, you know, that could be a model now. So, we go in and we establish new 4-H clubs based on regenerative agricultural practices. And then we install, like, these gardens and things into the schools using their budgets and systems. And then we have the problem preempted, right? Well, who's going to take care of it during – you know, June, July, and August, 4-H, as it was a dumb question, right? Because now we have the solution in place ahead of the problem. That, that's really
0: cool. Absolutely. And, and, that's, and that's part of the designer's responsibilities, right, is to look to see where the problems are going to be, what's going to be the issue that we're going to face. And so there's always the unexpected ones, right? So you have to have that flexibility built in there for when those come up. But, you know, trying to plan ahead and seeing where's the... Where, the different stakeholders, like your groundskeepers, are stakeholders in that, right? And do they want to take on more or take on stuff that they're not familiar with? I, I wouldn't want to be the groundskeeper who doesn't have a any any knowledge about gardening, and suddenly I'm told, hey, you got to mind all these tomato plants <laughs> during the summertime and make sure that they're not dead when the kids come back in September. You know, that's that's kind of daunting, um, and on top of all the other work that you, you already have to take care of. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. I think where there's a the world, there's a way. And it's just a, an issue of um, being creative about solving the problems.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, one of the other things I've noticed with um, that type of issue, with the groundskeeper thing. So I was really hot on cities at one time, like, why don't you guys plant pecans and apples and cherries and plums in your parks? What the hell's wrong with you? And then mm-hmm. you, you finally get through and talk to the – The people that maintain the parks, and are like, that's great until nobody uses it and nobody picks it, and we have rotting fruit all over the place.
0: Or until, like. Yeah, and you get raccoons and rats and (laughs) other things coming in that will use the fruit, right?
1: (laughs) And then you're like, okay, well, market the fact that the fruit, the food is there, and then people will use it. And then the next response is, well, that's really great until somebody comes in with the assumption that everything's edible. Right, and, 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 and bites into a, a, a berry on a, a horse nettle or a, a, a nightshade and kills themselves. And then we're sued because we created the expectation that everything was edible. And you're going, I don't think this is well, you, really the problem you think it is, but I sure understand why you think it is.
0: Right. Well, you know, in Sebastopol, near where I took my PDC, uh, there's a Luther Burbank uh, experimental garden. So, you know, and all the plants there are labeled kind of saying what what they're about. And, um you know, if you put a disclaimer out there, hey, don't eat, eat anything here at your own risk. I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, if you don't know what you're eating, you shouldn't be putting it in your mouth. But as far as the labor goes to that, you know, and maybe it's just because of, you know, what I do for work. But there's a huge resource out there, and, you know, and that's people who are working off jail time, out of custody, picking up trash on the side of the freeway. Those same people could be harvesting um, the nuts and the fruits in the city parks under the direction of uh, you know the the staff that would supervise them picking up trash on the side of the highway, and that food uh, could be given to you food banks. Yeah, you know, there's again, where there's a will, there's a way, and there's and there's simple, low-cost solutions to that. It's just a matter of kind of being creative in your problem-solving.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's not like it doesn't work either. I mean. Uh, We have quite a few, like, corporate office parks around here where due to oversight or intent or, I don't know, at one time, 20, 30 years ago when they were put in, somebody planted pecan trees. Like, no one really – I don't know that anybody really, like, thought it was a good idea or a bad idea or some smart guy stuck them in there. But now these pecan trees are 30 years old. They have 60-foot canopies. And you see people – pulled over on the side of the road in pecan season, just picking up pecans, and the, the corporations don't have a problem with it because it's out in the public space, it's outside the parking lot areas and all, and somebody's picking it all up. And then they look good and what have you. And nobody's dying. You know, well, what about if somebody, because another guy that I talked to from a city park, well, what if a kid with nuts allergies eats a nut? And I'm like, have we lost our minds? You know I mean? And that was like when we were doing the food forest for Helena, Montana. Yeah, we wanted we to put this nut tree, and I go, we can have a nut. There might be a child allergic to a nut. And I'm looking down the street and there's oak trees all over the place throughout the whole city. And you're going, I, how, do we, how do we get past this litigious nonsense and back to the, the standpoint that people are responsible for themselves? And that we're, you know, every, like you started out with the whole prime directive. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children right? So like your kids are your responsibility. They're not my responsibility to make sure your kid is never exposed to anything that might be dangerous to them ever. Now, I'm also uh, have, you know, these rights come with corresponding responsibilities. It's, it is my responsibility not to take, you know, a loaded 45 with a hammer cocked back and put it out at the school bus. I, you know, stop and leave it there with a, with a big shiny sticker pointing at it. I, I get that. But like, to ensure that your child never encounters a nut in their life because he has a peanut allergy i I don't think that's my responsibility, and that's holding a lot of this stuff back because i I don't know about you. you probably do this too. I drive down the highway and I look at all the open like highway easement and all and just go, yeah, I could feed like a half a million people a year on this strip of road and, and it drives me nuts that we're not doing that because it's yeah. there, and then we could use the water yeah, actually, heard- the highway right so that we have all this flooding and stuff in the highways, we could take that water. And use it with key light systems and swell systems to, 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 to make sure all those things grew.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think there are other countries that actually take advantage of that land. I, I think I've heard about in Italy that families actually kind of rent land in the in the median to garden in. Now I don't know that <laughs> I'd want to be gardening in the middle of some of our state the interstates around here, but uh you know, it is a it is a land base. It is a resource, and um, you, you look at it and you think that maybe there would be a better use for it.
1: Definitely, definitely. Well, hey, man, I, I've appreciated you being on today, and I think that you might there might be quite a few 4-H clubs established in the next couple of years uh, with this mentality because you took the time to be on the air with us today, and along with other, other great stuff you, you brought us, that's just really cool, and uh, I thank you for taking your time out of your day. To be with us on the survival podcast today, uh, Frank. Thanks a lot, Jack. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And one more time for people that want to learn more about what you do, your
0: website? Uh, Jackrabbit Farms, all one word, dot com.
1: Excellent. Folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearcook today, along with Frank Brawl, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food.
2: a better way.
1: can't
0: pay, nobody up there cares, they're living for today.